you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions helps accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated returns filing, and more. Listen for a special offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast, but ours features accounting managers who embezzle millions of dollars instead of accounting managers who chop up their coworkers. I am Greg Kite. And I am Caleb Newquist. Glad to be back uh, for another episode with you, Caleb. Likewise, Greg. I have never been an accounting manager, and likewise, I have never chopped up any coworkers. So... I'm feeling good. Good. Oddly missing from what you just said was you never said I never embezzled millions of dollars. So that's a nice to keep a little air of mystery about yes. yourself. Um, but okay. But here's a, but here's a question for you, Caleb. Yeah. Shoot. Uh, do you do you ever fantasize about stealing like larger small items, larger small dollar amounts? Do you ever kind of fantasize about doing that? So present day fantasies. Or past fantasies. Yeah. I just want to be clear yeah. here. E- either one. You know, as a youth, all mm. of my stealing was either as an accessory or as a, uh, you know, it was small time shoplifting. And I was right. never, I was never the klepto. I was never the actual thief. I was always a decoy or something. Right. So, okay. uh, but I never felt good about it. Never felt good about it. But also no. it was usually stealing things like, chewing tobacco or beer or oh, or things that I wasn't right. supposed to be doing anyway as a as a person as an adult I think stealing I I I could not tell you the last thing I stole I I mean I right. so yeah I but, don't think I really don't fantasize about it at all okay cool yeah. so, do you and, fantasize and, and, and about it I I think sometimes I do like to be just dead honest when we when you and I talk about some of these accounting frauds that we jump into, I go, I think I could do that. <laughs> I yeah. Think, I, okay. I mean, not, not like morally, like, like you were saying, I think my conscience would prevent me from doing it, but I think I have the skills to pull it off. So now that you mention it, I have occasionally fantasized about being like a jewel thief or a, or, a, <laughs> oh, or, yeah. or, yeah, or an art thief. Or actually, kind of on a border, kind of in a in a, a more boring <laughs> sense. I think I'd be a great fence. I'd make a great fence. I could, okay. you know, have a have a squeaky gate and deal in stolen goods. That's what I think I would be good at. Okay, gotcha. So here's so then let's let's take it a little bit different because because we've again with the different ways that we've explored fraud. One of the things that comes up in a lot of the cases that we explain is that these these people perpetrating specifically embezzlement cases end up with just tons and tons of money that they clearly did not get from their day job. Like, let's say, just hypothetically, you were a fraudster and you embezzled, let's say you embezzled $8 million over four years. Do you have any idea of how you would explain that to those around you? I think there's there's two ways to go about it. I think, number one, 
lottery winnings is is perfectly yes. is perfectly plausible and yet yep. complete bullshit uh but yeah. but it's just plausible enough that i think mm-hmm. lottery winnings or gambling winnings most people like if it was my wife i mean my god it would really cuz i my wife and i are very close and so it's like one of those things where she'd be like you're so full of shit. Like I would, I would, I would really have to have a good story. Right. But like for people that aren't as close to me, you know, I think an inheritance is probably a pretty reasonable story. Mm -hmm. That's probably a little bit more plausible. It would probably have to be one of those two. And there's still holes in both. Like, I don't know how long it would actually last. What about you? And, and, well, I, it's funny because the exact same things, lottery yeah. and inheritance. Those were the two things I came up with. So I guess we, we figured it out. Lottery is, uh, is, the, is the thing. I think part of the appeal of fraud, at least in the early days of any fraud, is that it's fun. Uh, you're getting, right. you're well, getting, yeah, you you're getting so. money and you're blowing it on stupid shit. And it's just <laughs> great. Shit. It feels yeah, great. Yeah, it's got to be. It's, it's got to be. But it seems like with every case we look at, that ends up blowing up in their face. And that's actually exactly the case in the fraud that we are going to look at today on this very podcast is two things. One, the fraudster's backstory is incredibly important because in this case, the explanation for the ill-gotten gain was exactly what got our fraudster caught. And to a maybe not equally significant degree, but to a very significant degree he he also kept his fraud completely hidden from his wife and that was another one of the major uh that, that was a rug that got pulled out from under him that led to his downfall so when we come back we are going to get into the case of with great check writing power comes great responsibility it's a story about how a guy stole millions of dollars from the massive insurance company ing so stick around and we'll tell you all about it. In this episode of Oh My Fraud, we're talking about a guy who single-handedly misappropriated $8 million from the insurance giant ING, and he did it in four years. Uh, He started stealing money in 2003. He was caught in 2007. And what's what's weird about this, and we're going to get into it in a bit, is that if he had just stopped after his first $88,000, he would have gotten away with it scot-free. And this, so, 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 yeah, let me just say, I mean, but who stops? What fraudster has self-control? That's my question. Does anyone? The, the. It's not the see, good one. The to, ones we don't know about. The ones that we won't be talking about, obviously. Right. Okay. No, exactly. Okay. Don't you agree though? No, that's like, right. No, that's really, exactly right. The the fraudsters who can't who, who the fraudsters with self-control, we will never talk about. Yeah. And and it goes back to kind of the fantasies that that I've had about doing this kind of stuff. As I go, oh my gosh, if you're not greedy, which is weird because obviously if you're embezzling money, you're a greedy son of a bitch. Like that's that's like clear. But but you know what I mean? It's like if you don't get greedy with how much you're stealing from your company, if you just keep it to a to a reasonable level of theft, you're you're likely gonna get away with it for for much much longer if not get away with it for good and Ooh. that's part that's part of the whole thing we're we're dangerous Caleb dangerous. you and me 
So great. because we know how to do this. So anyway, getting back to the story. Yes. Set us up. Greg. Yeah. So like where where are we? Okay. At? So we're in Minnesota. And the guy that we're talking about is Nathan Muller. And so he worked at this company called Reliastar. It was a life insurance company. And in 2000, in the year 2000, his company, Reliastar, was acquired by the big daddy, ING. And ING, ING is not an American company. It's a Dutch company. And it's been acquired in recent, more recent years. It was acquired by Capital One. So, so yeah, like I said, two, in the year 2000, uh, his company got acquired by ING, but it took him two years. So in 2002, he discovered that both he and a coworker had the authority to approve checks up to a quarter million dollars. They could single-handedly approve checks up to that ridiculously high amount. It didn't have to be like, you approve it and I approve it, and then the $250,000 ready to go. It's just like he alone could just say, hey, we need to cut a check for $250,000. And, and when he found that out, he was very, like one, he was like, that's ridiculous. And two, that was a mistake. Not just that it was an oversight or people didn't think through it. It was like, he categorizes that himself in his own account of this story. He says that he was, he and his coworker were both mistakenly given the authority to, to approve checks up to that astronomical amount. So once he got acquired by ING, he worked in a very, very small accounting department. It's kind of, you know, they didn't get into the details of this, but it sounds like there was about six, there was only about six people in his department. And really there was three people, he, he and two other people, it sounds like worked very, very closely together and were kind of a very integral to each other's jobs. And so so basically th this was the way the separation of duties were supposed to do is someone was going to request a check, another person is supposed to approve the requested check, and then a separate person was going to go and physically pick up the checks. So that that was the separation of duties that they had. That makes sense. That's a wonderful in internal control. We talk about that a lot as being kind of the basics of how you prevent fraud is you sec segregate your duties, right? So wait Caleb? A Wait a minute. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But my yep. question mm -hmm. for you then, isn't there mm -hmm. a, is, isn't there room for error or malfeasance because there's overlap between all of these? Like oh. shouldn't, or, oh. I mean, I mean, so if, if I guess I understand like in some, some scenarios like, oh, if staff person number one isn't available to request the check, then staff number two can request the check, but the primary person mm -hmm. who does that or, or the primary person who does approval or the primary person who picks up the checks. Like, I just, I just wonder, like it, I know you can't, what they, what they say in your, you know, your fraud classes is there's no guarantee to eliminate, you know, you can't, you can't guarantee that fraud won't occur, but I just wonder right. about the separation but also the overlap of duties. Right. I, you know, and that's, and that's a great question because I am unsure which would actually be a tighter internal control. Because what you're saying is that it would appear that it'd be tighter if you had one person and only one person who requested checks, one person and only one person who could authorize checks and one person and only one person who could pick up the checks. And that, and I get what you're saying, and that does make sense that that would be, that that would, that that seems to be a tighter 
level of internal control. But I think as long as it's not the same person, like like whoever requests the check, that precludes them from authorizing the check. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? I do. And yeah. then whoever okay. authorizes the check, that precludes them from the physical uh, custody of the check. So I think if that's the case, then then I think you've got just as tight of internal controls and possibly tighter because one of the things that we've seen is that people who are perpetrating frauds often don't want to share their responsibilities with others. Right. So this this kind of, for, well, maybe not forces, but this at least allows for sharing of responsibilities among these different people. Yeah, and so, I guess the other, the other, other detail that I'll point, that I would point out and then I will let you continue but I think the, the another factor here is because it's a small accounting department. So the other thing that I just uh -huh. was thinking about is, well, if you had uh, if you had these three important pieces of, uh, I guess, custode if you had these three custodial activities, right? The request, the approval, and then the physical uh, possession, right? Mm -hmm. If you had a team of six, you could have two staff members on mm -hmm. each. And they wouldn't have overlap, and that would be as about as tight as you could do it, right? Does that right. make sense? Yeah that that does that does make sense. That seems like it's that's a, that'd be both sharing responsibilities and very tight segregation to do. So you're you're right. Why aren't you out being a consultant for internal controls? Why are you here? Oh, I think it's because I enjoy my life. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. I like that's what I'm a doing. Good, that, that's a great like answer. So here's the thing though. So that's how the, that's how the internal controls were supposed to work is how we just described. But the problem was with these three people with, with Nathan Muller and his coworker and his two coworkers that had those, that shared those three responsibilities. The problem is with only three of them there, if any one of the three was out of the office, they would, they would come to a complete standstill in terms of actually getting their work done. So what their practical workaround was is they just told each other their passwords and logins to get into the system. So if Nathan was homesick with COVID one day that the rest of the they their their department could actually continue to function, which a makes sense, but b makes the internal controls completely useless. Like it it, it completely uh, neuters the 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 internal controls. Yes. So an antidote to internal controls, it, if I understand it correctly, is uh, either laziness or convenience. Right. Which, yeah. which is, which is awesome that you say that because a lot of times you go, the way to get around internal controls is collusion mm. where you need all three of these people to be, to be greedy and, uh, morally compromised know, lack scruples. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But instead it's like, or we just got a job to get done and we don't want to wait till Wednesday. If Debbie, if Debbie took a personal day today. Yeah. So I got to I mean, it, I mean, today. <laughs> we gotta go. These people need to be paid. This is yeah. our this is our responsibility as an insurance company to make sure people get their payouts up from the policy they've been paying on premiums for years forever. I haven't you seen the movie The Incredibles? Do you understand what I'm saying by that one? Caleb? I do. I've seen way? it many times. Perfect. It's a great I love film. that movie. And uh, and yep. if you don't know that reference, then well, fuck off. Anyway. Treat yourself. Well, oh, you, you're fuck off. I'm like, treat yourself. Go, go check it out. It's a nice <laughs> night. And you're like, you're like, go to hell. You're a bad person. If you haven't seen The Incredibles by now, uh, go just 
mean, it's been almost What's, 20 years. Come on. Give it the program. Good, good point. Good point. No, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Our sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and clients. Whether you are a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other indirect and direct taxes. In October 2021, IDC MarketScape named Avalara a leader in tax automation in three categories, small and mid-sized business, enterprise, and VAT. If you're considering tax automation, check out the independent IDC evaluations at omf.show slash Avalara. Once again, that's omf.show slash Avalara. And later, we will be telling you about a special offer for anyone who wants to learn more. So, so here's another. So obviously we're, we're setting up for this whole thing of, of Nathan Muller to start stealing mo- money, but also to give a little more backstory on this. So Nathan Muller, his annual salary, again, we're talking in the early 2000s, was $80,000 a year. And he had $88,000 of consumer debt and student loans. So his basically it's kind of like his credit card debt, I guess maybe a car loan and some student loans altogether. That was $88,000. He also had a mortgage on his home. But what he was, what he said, my $88,000 a year salary just wasn't cutting it with paying off his $88,000 worth of consumer debt. And on one hand, I kind of get that because if your consumer debt equals more than a year's salary, even uh, you know, even David Ramsey is going to be a little concerned <laughs> about your about your ability to pay that off even if you really get gazelle focused on your on paying off your debt. But at the but but the other the other thing is that you've got to realize that in 2003, which is when he started stealing money, the median household income in Minnesota was only 52,000, almost 53,000, just under 53,000. So he was making significantly more than most people who lived in his state. He was well above the median. So he's doing he's doing okay. He's doing fine. He's thinking but he's thinking to himself, "Oh no, I'm not. I can't. I can't pay off this debt." I think that speaks to his inclination for his lifestyle choices. Because again, if you're if you're just uh, if you're living below your means, that's how you pay off debt or steal money from your company. And he chose to not live below his means. That was too much of a sacrifice. So the next thing was to steal money. Another thing, uh, I mean, and, he and I guess we didn't get maybe, to this. Maybe he could have figured out a side hustle. I guess I guess stealing he, was the side hustle. It, it was the side was. hustle. And and the, the the last thing to just put in here into the mix was like I said, it took it was it was in 2002 that he that he realized he had this uh, check approval power up to a quarter million dollars. But it was also like after he realized that that all of a sudden like the light bulb came on. He's like, oh crap, not only can I approve checks up to this insane amount of money, but also I a hundred percent could just log in as somebody else, request a check, go back in 
and approve it myself. And again, just putting to get together the pieces of the of the internal control segregation of duties puzzle that was in his department. It sounds like the requester could still be have physical possession, could go pick up the check. So as long as you didn't authorize it, you could request it and pick it up. So he was like, oh, shoot, I could 100% take care of all this. So he realized all this. He realized what he could do in 2002. He did not start stealing money until 2003. So it was, he says, he says in his account of this story, he was tempted every day for an entire year by the pot of gold that he was sitting on, meaning all the money from ING that he could steal from them. So that's so that's the setup to him starting this entire scheme. Well, you you, you know the the initial little spurt of willpower is admirable, right? It, it, it yeah. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> kind of not. Kind of not, he and, we'll, and we'll get he to that. He crumbled. He he will, and 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 when we get to our to to the lessons learned, I I'll I'll dive in with you into why that's not so admirable that his year of uh, embezzlement abstinence was not was not as admirable as it might at first appear. Well, you know, if you um, if you if you just self service that stuff, then you usually you're fine. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, yeah. If you just steal money from from yourself, it just gets the it gets the uh, it gets the job done. The the release, yeah. <laughs> so uh, in two thousand three, so in June two thousand three, that's when he first started stealing money. So he did exactly what we said. He requested and approved a check for for a mere one thousand one hundred dollars, which is a drop in the bucket. Compared to what his total check, uh, uh, you know, authorizing authority, his check approval authority was. So, uh, so he he uh, he he requested and approved a check for one thousand one hundred dollars. He he had the check made payable to one of his credit cards. Interesting kind of side note is that one of the, the credit card he was paying off it had Universal as part of the name for the credit card and. Um, one of the one of the main vendors that ING paid through his department also had Universal in its name. So he was thinking, oh, this is a way to be slick because if anybody just does a quick glance down the check register, they'll they'll key in on Universal and it won't it won't raise any suspicions because the similarity of the to a name and a lot of other checks. So and, and I go, yeah, that's that's probably the case. So he started with with eleven hundred bucks. He sent that in. Apparently, he was sweating bullets because he was like going because he was well aware of the fact that he could lose his eighty thousand dollar year job for stealing eleven hundred dollars, and that's a bad ROI on your on your uh, thievery uh, endeavor. So the first one was eleven hundred. He got it. He he requested it, approved it, got it, sent it in. It hit his account, and he goes, "Awesome." The next one. He went from eleven hundred bucks to eighteen hundred bucks, uh, and by the end of August, so June, July, August, so but in within three months, he he paid off all eighty eight thousand dollars of debt that he had. Again, he, he was very specific that did not include his mortgage on his home, but in terms of that consumer debt, that was really his problem. He paid it all off in three months, so he went kind of bonkers. So I mean, if you, if you think about. If all of the checks were somewhere around 
between one and four thousand dollars. He's requesting what maybe thirty checks over the course of this time, twenty to thirty checks to pay off that debt, wouldn't you say? Yeah, uh, I take I, I take back what I said about willpower. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he that's lost just it all that, right that, there. Yeah. I mean, it, he he paid it off really fast. Yeah. I mean, so even with the approval up to two fifty, I mean, at least he didn't pay it all off in one shot. Then we'd really be having <laughs> right. You know, right. We'd be, we'd be making really strange, gross jokes. But right. <laughs> but in this case, three months. So. Yeah. And you know and that and that is one of the interesting things cuz if he had just gone big and just requested one giant check for $88,000 and it went through, I think he would have he would have just be, like like he would have been emboldened to a ridiculous degree right. if he had done that way. But the other funny thing is it it's a lot easier to bury one check for 88,000. I mean again, if he's got approval uh, authority up to $250,000, that must mean that his department is writing some pretty massive checks anyways. Yeah. So maybe 88,000 88, just that that dollar amount might not, you know, set off any bells or whistles to as as an outlier, but um and then with it just being one check, maybe it's easier to 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 have it, you know, get lost in the in the minutia, right. which, which honestly, like for, for auditors, that's kind of the case. If you know auditing, you're taking samples because you're thinking that whatever's happening is happening to a large degree. So yep. if you just have one, if you have one fraudulent check instead of 20 or 30, you have a, a smaller, uh, it's less likely that you're going to get caught by the auditors that way. Yep. But when you also, you look at an entire population of transactions, right? And when you do, when you scope a job, I remember, you know, being a young auditor and you'd be looking at transactions after you've scoped a job and depending on how big the job is, you know, in, in the context of an audit, you ignore large sums of money all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. 1100 bucks, like anyone who's even paying attention will be like, they they would just they wouldn't give it a second thought because in the grand scheme of the nature of this business it is it's not a material amount by a long right. shot and even like right. say even 88,000 might have not have been material by a long shot and so probably not that is what i think is always it's always one of those things in accounting that i catch myself thinking about and i don't know if other people have this thought too but Sometimes the, the 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 magnitude of the numbers, it just you just kind of forget about it, and that yeah. is what that is part of what can make fraud so. Maybe it's maybe it's temptation, right? But it, it, it's just one of those things where, for one person, these amounts of money can make an enormous difference, but in the context of a even relatively good sized company. It can completely go overlooked. Yeah, ab absolutely. Well, if you're talking about a, a billion dollar company, which I'm sure ING is a multi billion dollar company in terms of just their revenue every year, eight million dollars over four years that averages out to two million dollars a year. Two million out of a billion. That's that's you know point. Even if even if ING was only a one billion dollar company, that's 
0.2% of their revenue. Right. And it's, yeah, that's, that's well below any, any materiality threshold, not just for the 88,000, but for the 8 million that this guy took. So yeah, it gets pretty mind boggling when you think not just about what's stolen, but what these companies are making to where that, you know, where $8 million could get overlooked. Yeah. So here, as the story progresses, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole story. So it was, I, I, I believe this was the very last check that he had requested to pay off his $88,000. It was the very last one. It was a check for $4,500. He requested it. He authorized it. He got it. He sent it into the credit card company. And then two things happened that, that would have caused anybody to start just sweating and knowing that the gig was up. A, he never saw the $4,500 posted to his credit card bill. So the credit card company didn't get it. And... He didn't see it coming through the bank account. It wasn't clearing ING's bank either. So this $4,500 was out there and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. And because of that, he was just sure that the gig was up. Like he was, every time the phone was ring, would ring, he was like, this is going to be my, my boss telling me that I got a lot of explaining to do about these checks to Universal Credit Card Company. And, and so he was like, he was dying with, with just anxiety and stress over this $4,500 check. Totally understandable. And then one day he shows up at his desk and there's one of those, like he, he walked into his office and there was just like this ominous inner office envelope just waiting on his desk and like i said he's been expecting for his entire house of cards to crumble with this 4500 check he opens the envelope and inside the inner company envelope is the 4500 check and what so here's what had happened here's what he pieced together he so he looks he looks at the check he realizes he forgot to put his credit card number on the check that he sent into his credit card company. And since the, the check didn't come from him, they couldn't like tie it back from the credit card's perspective. They got this random $4,500 check and they're like, oh, we don't know what the fuck to do with this, with this check. And so they're like, okay, we have no idea what credit card this gets applied to. So I guess we just, they're like, who sent us the check? Just send it back to them. They'll figure out what what's supposed to do. So they took the $4,500 check and they sent it back to ING's home office, just whatever the, the address was on the check. So the home office, not the Minnesota office, saw this check and there and, and like whoever got it, just the clerk that got it there was like, what the fuck is this $4,500 check for? We don't know who, where to come. And, you know, and they're probably just busy and going, oh, gosh, some more damn mail. I've got too much to do already. What? So what do I who who can help me get to the bottom of this $4,500 check? And they're like, well, who who requested it? And they're like, that person will know what it is. And just by total dumb luck, like Nathan Muller himself had requested that check. So he didn't log into someone else to request this check. He logged in as himself to request the check. So they sent it back to him just going, hey, you requested this check. It came back to us. Figure out what figure out what's supposed to happen to make this make this right, okay, Muller? And so 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 he so he gets this check back and again, he dodged a fucking bullet 
with this whole thing. And he has the balls to take that check and just put his account number on it and send it back to the credit card company. Oh, and then he's I like, can fix oh. this. Yeah. And, but think about it. Because on one hand, I go, that was just big balls from Nathan Muller to do that. But then I also go, it might have not have been because what were his alternatives? Just go, hey, uh, just, uh, you know, let's just void that check and not ever pay that money again. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that like, would look that would look bad. It's like, oh, I guess they didn't need the forty five hundred. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, we cut it by mistake. I don't know. Yeah. So in other words, my, it's sometimes my bad. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it's better to be lucky than good at fraud. I guess. And he was lucky at fraud that day, but but he pissed his pants, scared, and he was like, okay, that was that was way too close. Uh, so I. And I'm done with stealing. Like he, he was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to stop embezzling money. And he did stop embezzling money for about six months. <laughs> um, and then, and then, and again, it was really just the temptation because he hadn't gotten caught and, and there was no, I, I mean, and I imagine part of it too, like I said, he, he's, he had this close call. He's still got the money from the close call, and then he's able to kind of process what happened in the weaknesses in his original plan, and then he was able to regroup and come back together. And that's when the big dollars started to fly out of ING and into Nathan Muller's accounts. So in 2004, so the the 88,000 was all in in the, the summer of 2003, and in the beginning of 2004, he registered, he started a business called Ace Business Consulting LLC. He regis- registered it in the in the state of Minnesota. He got a, a, a tax ID number from the IRS for it and he opened a checking account for it. And and he and again, he very specifically named his company Ace Business Consulting for the same reason that he paid payments to Universal Credit Card, whatever, because they also did lots and lots of transactions with a company that was Ace something or other else. So he was like Ace Business Consulting. Same thing if people are glancing through it, they won't raise suspicions just by the name. And this is when he really started swinging for the fences. His first check that he that he processed for himself through his little uh, scheme was to Ace Business Consulting was for twenty seven thousand dollars. So he jumped from forty five hundred bucks to twenty seven thousand dollars because at this point, I you almost get the impression that he's just like. I'm just going for it. I'm 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 swinging for the fences. There's no I'm I'm going to see what I can do here. There there was uh, clearly a lack of restraint and also a lack of inhibition about what he was doing at this point. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? 
The Avalara for Accountants compliance automation platform helps accounting service providers grow their client base with sales tax prep and filing, business license management, and more. And Avalara Managed Returns for Accountants was recognized as a best product in 2021 through CPA Practice Advisors Technology Innovation Awards. Want to learn more? Well, stick around because later in the show, we're going to tell you about a special offer. So like I said, first check that he did this way, $27,000. In all of 2004, he stole a total of $1 million in 2004. He stole then $2 million in 2005, and he stole $4 million in 2006. And for any of our uh, mathematically inclined people out there, that that's literally a geometric growth progression from one to two to four. You're you're seeing him steal at a at, at literally an exponential rate. The the interesting thing, so he got caught in 2007, and in 2007 he only stole a million dollars that year. And there's a little bit of an explanation that we're going to get to in a bit why his stealing went down before he got caught, and and that's also an interesting bit of the story. But Caleb. You're probably wondering how the hell did Nathan Muller hide this money in the books? Because he couldn't have just like you credit cash and you debit the embezzlement account. That's- <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I think if you're perpetrating a fraud, I think one thing that you're probably always thinking about is how to cover your tracks. Yeah. Like how do you make sure because yes these are small amounts but they're getting larger and even though mm-hmm. none of, he was not cutting any checks over the thresh his you know the his his inflated threshold he had to have been thinking that he just wanted these things to be hidden mm-hmm. so that nobody would ever come around and be asking questions right exactly and, and that's, so and that's yes what, and, greg and, that's exactly what I've been thinking. How did he hide his fraud? And, and this, and I think this is super smart. Is what so part of his job was was doing foreign currency transactions from Canadian dollars. So so ING uh, people who who understand insurance companies know they receive premiums from their clients and then they invest a large portion of those premiums to earn money before they eventually have to withdraw those to pay out on different calamities that happen for people who insure with them. And so insurance companies are are some of the biggest uh, investors on the planet because they got tons of money that they want to make a little money on before they have to have to pay out to their customers. So ING based in the United States, or I guess ING US, you said it was a Dutch company. I didn't know that. But he he was supposed, regardless of how this was all structured, part of his job was doing the foreign currency uh, exchange rate, like booking that from the Canadian uh, investments into US dollars. And so what he found out is that he could fudge the exchange rate in the accounting system to be either you know less or more than it was supposed to and then and by doing so he could just say that the money he took out 
was actually just part of this whole foreign currency exchange job that he had. So he just buried it in this regular thing that he did with reconciling Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars. And I go, that's super smart. Super smart. Because because A, I can 100% see how you could easily manipulate stuff to hide your things. The second thing is nobody's going to want to spend time digging through the foreign currency uh, uh, reconciliation. As a matter of fact, I would I would think auditors would probably just kind of go, okay, we're not even going to look at those transactions because that's just fake stuff to get money from one currency to another currency. Don't don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is is that it's a it's it's one of those because currency markets are traded a gazillion times every single day. Yeah. Like the fluctuations in those exchange rates can vary widely at any given time, even throughout the day. And so adjustments and things like that are perfectly plausible uh, for any business that deals heavily in these like ING would. And so, yeah, I mean, he's burying it in a place where there would be a lot of activity and there would be probably a fair number of inju- uh, adjustments on a regular basis, and no one would think twice about it. And, right. um, and so, yeah, I think uh, I, as far as somebody trying to cover their tracks, he probably did about as good a job as he could have. That's how he explained it and hit it at work. But like we were talking about before, he also had the job to explain the money to to his family and friends, but but most importantly to his wife because he did not – Unlike Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite, he was going, I'm doing this 100% solo. My wife does not even know that I'm stealing this money from my company. So he had to have an explanation to her. His, uh, his original explanation was, hey, honey, I'm doing some extra accounting uh, gigs in the e- I'm moonlighting, and that's how I'm getting this extra money, which maybe was a reasonable way to explain the first $88,000. But then, like we said, he quickly got into this much higher dollar amount that he was getting, uh, that he was pulling out of ING. And he, and so with that, he changed his story. And this, this is the story that he gave. He was like, hey, here's where I'm getting this money. I'm winning large jackpots on high dollar slot machines when I go to Vegas. Caleb, both of us were like, lottery seems like a good way to explain extra money, but having a system on slot machines is like the dumbest and shittiest explanation. It's a horrendous for, explanation. Yeah. It's like, it's like, Oh, how do you get all this money? It's like, I'm really, really good at games that are 100% just chance and blind luck. I'm a, I've got a system for how I can, uh, how I can trick the universe into allowing me to win slot machines at, at an ungodly rate. And that, w- that was his explanation. That's the most confusing thing about this story to me a- in terms of how anybody could even possibly believe that line of bullshit. I mean... He panicked. It sounds like he panicked. He's like, <laughs> like, did she catch him in a vulnerable position one time? Like, was he in the bathroom? Right. And she's like, hey, by the way, like coming up with all this money. And he's like, uh, I've been winning large jackpots on high dollar slot machines. 
Yeah. So that was so that was his ex- explanation. I'm going to say right now, both you and I, our explanations, uh, way way better. Say you won the say you won Mega Millions and you chose the annual payout. So yeah. So there there was that. There was the high dollar slot machine thing. This is another part of the story that that is a little bit weird to me for a completely other reason. In 2006, so he got caught in 2007. In 2006. He, that was the year that he stole $4 million in one year was 2006. And the way he recounts that year was he was certain that he was going to eventually get caught because he knew that his, that this was going to be a short lived thing. He needed to do what he could out of love for his wife to insulate her from the consequences of his actions. And so the way that he chose to insulate his wife, the the woman that he loved, that he was so concerned about not get caught up in his wrongdoings is that he decided to divorce her because that was the, that was the loving thing to so, do to protect so, his wife. So don't stop the fraud. No. Don't confess your crimes. No. Don't turn yourself into the authorities. No. Divorce your wife. And that's why I said I, I don't know if I totally buy that. I think it's probably the guy wasn't real happy in his marriage and and used his embezzlement as a good excuse to to get out of something he didn't want to be in anyways. So in in mid 2007. So again, 2007 is the year that he started cooling off. He st- he he stole much less money. In mid 2007, there was an internal review at ING that kind of brought to, to just just kind of made it public this the fact that it had been there since two th- since the year 2000 that both Nathan Muller and one of his coworkers could approve checks up to $250,000. So they did this review. They're like going, hey, did you, did you know you guys could approve checks up to $250,000? And Nathan Muller is like, what? That much? That's, that's weird. That's weird. And then the... <laughs> And then they're like, yeah, I maybe that shouldn't be the case. He's like, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. not. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You totally need to. Maybe we need to bring that down a lot because that seems risky Way to too the company. Huh? <laughs> so 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 he like, I mean, you know, again, it, it, he voluntarily I mean, you know, quote unquote voluntary. I don't think he had a choice to not to give up his authorization uh, you know, privileges up to $250,000, but he, he didn't fight it. And again, it's it just kind of like with that $4,500 check, what was his option? He could be like, no, no, no. I think it's very important that I keep my, my completely arbitrary ability to, to authorize checks up to a quarter million dollars. Don't, don't take that away from me. That'll be horrible for the company. That would have been a huge red flag. So instead he just had to kind of roll with it. So that alone I think started moving him to where he was stealing less money in 2007 already. But as we said, the gig was up in 2007 anyways. And what happened there was Nathan Muller, he divorced his wife to protect her from this whole thing. So, so he was now a divorcee, but in the, you know, but the, the divorce happened in 2006 
And he and he and his co-workers have been working together at least since 2000, maybe longer if they were also co-workers at Reliastar before it got acquired by ING. And so one of his co-workers, one of the people that he shared the passwords and logins with uh, over the course of time, this co-worker, she had become good friends with Mrs. Muller. And the divorce happened, but the, but this co-worker still was friends with Nathan's ex-wife. And so the co-worker and the ex-wife went to lunch at Panera Bread in August of 2007. And at that lunch at Panera Bread, which is very specific that Nathan Muller recalled that this lunch had occurred at this specific sandwich shop. But at, at that fateful lunch, the ex-wife sounds like just kind of offhandedly was like, was like, yeah, you know what? I, 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 I always kind of thought it was bullshit the way he said that he, he won high jackpot slot machines regularly. The, the way the story so it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I think he was kind of uh, that uh, high jackpot slot machine winning things was kind of bullshit. Oh, and this turkey is really good. If you how's the turkey in your sandwich? So the coworker, it's stuck in her that that comment of the wife not believing the lucky at slot machine story. That's that like that like started just boring into her brain. And so after that lunch, the coworker went back to the office and just ran a report of every check that she had authorized in 2007 and she saw all these checks to Ace Business Consulting come up and she's like, I don't know what Ace Business Consulting is and I've never authorized a single goddamn check to Ace Business Consulting in my whole goddamn life. So then she went to, she went to the boss, she gave that information to the boss and the boss was then like going, hey, Nathan, I need, I need the vouchers for every single one of these checks that was made to Ace and Nathan Nathan was like was like hey yeah totally that sounds like a big deal so i will 100% get that to you but you know what? it's actually going to take me a couple of days to pull that together so how about instead cuz the boss was like by friday this needs this report needs to be on my desk he's like yeah i totally get it but you know give me the weekend i'll have it to you by monday and then on Monday, he 100% did not have the vouchers for the checks to Ace Business Consulting. So he went, he goes into this meeting, and it's not a fun meeting, clearly not a fun meeting for Nathan Muller. And he says in his own recounting of the story, he says that that meeting ended when he literally ran out of the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is what, what I was just thinking about while you were kind of recounting this whole thing falling apart is just how fast it happened. It basically all yeah. happened within a couple hours of a, uh, yeah. of a pleasant lunch, a pleasant lunch at right. Panera bread. And in uh, the hour after that pleasant lunch, the jig was up. It was all over. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Just and then, path. and so, so yeah, so the boss asked for the vouchers to be prepared for the, the ACE payments by Friday. Nathan asked for an extension till Monday. He ran out of the meeting on Monday and on Tuesday, the, the authorities showed up at his door and it was, it was over, over at that point. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting here 
is that uh, Mueller was sentenced to 96 months in jail, of which he only served 68 months. Hmm. Uh, the fraud lasted about 50 months, and he was in jail for only a year and a half longer than the duration of his entire fraud scheme. So again, we know, and 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 I was unable to find what his actual like s- civil penalty or his, his, you know, what the what he was required to pay, pay back to ING. But what we've seen from similar frauds to this is if he stole eight million dollars, he's required to at least pay back the eight million dollars that he stole. So, so if you had eight million minus the eight hundred sixty that they got from his assets, he still has seven million dollars that he's got to pay back to ING. So, you know, he's basically not making any money for the rest of his life because of this this fraud. So, that's the story of Nathan Muller. Any any final thoughts before we go to our break and come back and talk about the lessons that we learned from this? Any observations you got, Caleb? Uh, I think the only one observation that I have is like other, other cases that we've talked about is that this wasn't a, this wasn't complicated. This wasn't something that right. required a, a vast conspiracy. It didn't require mm-hmm. him to be kind of a, a wizard of manipulating financial records or, uh, or other kind of chicanery. It was, it was really just kind of, uh, a glitch in the system that he was able to exploit and was able to go on because of, again, because of kind of glitches in the systems, it went undetected for quite a while. And that, that seems yeah. pretty consistent across a lot of the things that we've talked about. Yep. So, and, and so with that, we're going to look at in terms of the, the simplicity, in terms of the glitches, we're going to look at those glitches. We're going to look at the simplicity. We're going to see what we learned and how, how possibly this could have been detected or even prevented uh, from happening when we come back from this next break. Do your clients need help with sales tax automation? Avalara can help your accounting practice start or grow an existing tax compliance practice while you gain efficiencies and reduce risk for you and your clients. Learn more about Avalara for accountants and you'll get a free gift. Meet with an expert to explore how Avalara can help your accounting practice grow and they'll give you a $50 gift card. Contact Avalara at accountants at avalara.com and mention the code fraud. So now is the time in our podcast where we look through what we just talked about. We look through the story and we kind of try to say what 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 did we learn today from all of this so so we all know the theory of the fraud triangle that you have to have opportunity pressure and rationalization those three things need to be present in order for a fraud to be committed one of the big things that was here was this opportunity yep. and like we said Nathan Muller realized that he could steal just tons of money from ING and he didn't do anything about it for a year, but he was just, te- like we said, he he said that he was tempted every single day for that year. The easiest way for this to have been solved is if Nathan Muller had just been like, hey guys, 
this sucks being tempted like this. Maybe he doesn't say that part. Maybe he says that in his head. But instead, he goes to his to, to his supervisors and he says, "Hey, did you guys know that I that I was given authority to authorize checks up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? Maybe that shouldn't be the case, and we need to figure out how we can still do our jobs, but not." have to know each other's passwords. So he could have he basically could have turned himself in before he did anything wrong and then a he would have he would have should have been relieved that he's no longer got this weird temptation that's that's held around his neck. But like I said, you can you can phrase that in a way that's not quite like, "Hey, I'm a psychopath and I want to take all your money. Stop me before I do, guys." Your posit that is it? Can I say it that way? Your posit? Yeah. You posit yeah. that transparency is the <laughs> is probably the best antidote for fraud. I I I think that's exactly right. I just I yeah. don't there. If you know that you're being watched or that you're being monitored, if there's a system of monitors in place or if there's a systems of transparency in place, that seems to be the way that that will it won't. It isn't like turning on the lights and then seeing all the cockroaches. It like the cockroaches will just never show up, you know, because right. you've created an environment that is basically can be seen uh, at all times. And I think that's I think that's the most effective way to go. Yeah. In terms of ethics, if you're ever put in an ethical situation where you go, I don't know what I don't know what the right choice is to do here. The first thing you need to do is talk to everybody about what the problem is and maybe you know, talk to your manager, just be transparent about it. And that's from small things to big things. It gets you out of any ethical dilemma. And, and obviously, the more you can create transparency in your company and even the appearance of transparency in your company, that's going to help reduce fraud. But let's get past transparency. Let's talk yeah. about red flags because that's always something I love to look at with these cases is what are the red flags that were exhibited by the perpetrators and in this, well, and Caleb, do you, without looking, maybe, maybe it's too late to ask you this. Do you mm. know what the biggest red flag is, uh, b- biggest behavioral red flag uh, that's exhibited by, by people who perpetrate frauds? Oh, uh, yeah. I, my guess is living beyond their means. Yeah, absolutely right. That's it. This is a, this this very a highfalutin lifestyle, or at least a lifestyle that can't be justified by their by the money that they make at their day job. Right. That's the that's the the biggest red flag, and that clearly was the case with Nathan Muller here. That's why I had to start talking about winning these jackpots and these slot machines. Forty two percent of fraudsters exhibit the red flag of living beyond their means. That clearly was the case that's here. If you're trying to figure out who's stealing money or if you're worried that someone is, a lot of times just go, who's who's spending a lot more money than they can really, than they would really have at this job? That's that's the first question. Another red flag that, that comes up in the literature, specifically this comes from the Marquet Report on Embezzlement, which unfortunately the, this guy, Chris Marquet, he had a, he had a really cool podcast uh, called Fraud Talk that he stopped doing somewhere around 2013, 2014. And I'm glad he's gone because we don't need that kind of competition in the podcast market with Fraud Podcast, Chris. So thanks for giving up and for being a quitter. But 
He also, every year, he for many years, he produced this report called the Marquet Report on Embezzlement. And in that, he reported that 33% of embezzlement cases, a red flag for the perpetrator, is that they had gambling problems. Like, to the point where it's like, if you... If you know that if you're worried that somebody's stealing money from your company, but you don't know who it is, start figuring out who likes to gamble. And that's you, that's the guy. It's not the butler, it's the gambler who did it. An- another red fl- another one of the biggest red flags, actually, this is the second biggest red flag that they have is financial difficulties. But again, what's weird is that. I think Nathan Muller's financial, they were perceived financial difficulties. I don't think they were real financial difficulties. Again, just mm. based on his his income uh, compared to the to the median income. What yeah, do you, do you I think, don't think I don't think living beyond your means is so much financial difficulties as it is uh, the American way, Greg. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great thing because because it almost feels like okay, if only twenty percent of of fraudsters are experiencing financial difficulties than the other 74% have a budget that they live by every month and are right. working diffi- you know, diligently right. to Wildly. reduce their consumer debt and they're investing well and they've got a healthy 401 right okay. wildly no, wildly successful not. in every facet of their life right. except the fraud they're, i mean it just doesn't right they're yeah. great great personal finance money managers and that and that really gets the next one so another another red flag is divorce and family problems 12% of fraudsters have the uh, there's divorce or family problems is one of their red flags he obviously got a divorce partway through his fraud but i do think it's the same thing where it's like oh so 88% of fraudsters don't have any family problems right. so so 88% of them just have this perfect idyllic home life but they're still stealing all this money so it is it, it, I think for both of those red flags, it's like excessive financial difficulties and excessive family problems. Right. Those, those sorts of things are, are what we're talking about. And 9% of fraudsters exhibit the red flag of addiction problems. And that is one thing that Nathan Muller definitely had. It even says that when he was in prison, he went through addiction treatment for alcoholism. So he he definitely was experiencing that red flag was was a, a given. So I'd say the two that were blatant was living beyond your means and, and alcohol problems. The other ones are kind of like, yeah, those might have been there, but they they weren't at least blaring red flags. Yep. The next thing I, that I want to dive into with you about lessons learned from this whole thing, it, it's more, maybe this isn't really lessons learned. This is opinions that we got. Uh, and, yeah. and it's this that, so you can you can find Nathan Muller on LinkedIn, which I did, and which his uh, his LinkedIn a link to his LinkedIn page is in the show notes of this this uh, podcast, and it says on his LinkedIn page that he is now a quote ethics and fraud speaker, which is actually how he got on my radar because he gave a presentation to the AICPA, and the AICPA took his like basically did a transcript of his talk and put that in the journal of accountancy. Also a link to that in the show notes. Um, but, but now his money, well, and he has a company called integrative ethics, LLC, and that's how he earns a living. And that's the question I've got for you. Is it okay for people like Nathan Muller who, who perpetrated these huge frauds to still actually be profiting from their crimes, just not, just in a different way is that what are your thoughts about that to me it, it doesn't it doesn't feel good that these guys are 
they're making money telling the story of how they stole a lot of money and that's now a profitable business for them. Yeah. And I guess I think I see your point, but I think the way I think about it is there's a couple of different things. Number one, this is America and America, uh, America loves a lot of things. Uh, they definitely love it. Uh, when, um, people at the top come crumbling down, they do love vengeance and justice. And so, but they, they also love, they love a, what they love pickup trucks. Yep. They love pickup trucks, but they also love, uh-huh. but they also love a good comeback. And so I think okay. in the cases yeah. of guys like that, I think America is definitely one of those places where second chances happen all the time. And I think when yeah. people pay their debts to society, I think they absolutely uh, do deserve second chances. All right. The fact that they profit off of it doesn't feel good to me. It just doesn't feel good. And really, a lot of what we're talking about with justice is, does it feel like justice was served? Right. And and to me, no. If you're now making, if he's living in a nice house I mean, even if he has to pay a lot of that money back to ING, if his cut of what he makes, if his percentage of that gives him in a in a nice house with a nice car, I that that bugs me. Like you said, the second stance and a second chance and a comeback story, I 100% am cool with that. But for some reason, I want Nathan Muller's comeback story to be that he opened a bicycle shop and he's just running one hell of a legit bicycle shop now. I don't want it to be that he's he's writing a book about how I you know how i did it i mean i i I think i I think your points are valid and i think it i think it depends on context and nuance and all those things that people really don't care about they they do want they just do want (laughs) justice uh whatever flavor of justice they like exactly yep okay so so another just to keep beating the justice dead horse so ing is not gonna get back most of the $8 million that was stolen by Nathan Muller. And yep. he was in prison for about five and a half years when his fraud covered four years. Do you feel like like justice was served? with Because, because we always see that these, that these kind of crimes are that the people generally get let off very easily. Do you feel like, like he was punished severely enough for his crime? What's your opinion on that? I mean, you know, to to spend over five years in prison for a nonviolent crime, it's hard for me to argue that he deserved to be in jail longer than that. I, I guess, I mean, my the question that I would have for someone who disagrees with that is like, well, what's a sufficient what's a sufficient sentence for somebody who commits a nonviolent crime of that nature? I don't know. I, I just that's what I kind of come back to on a lot of these things, and I guess. And maybe, I don't know, this is maybe not as strong of an argument, but, you know, a corporation like ING, the size of it is, the resources it has, $8 million is nothing to a company like that. It's very, it's a very different circumstance than, say, the circumstances in Dixon, where in Dixon, Illinois, on a a previous Mm -hmm. episode that we talked about, where the money that was taken by that perpetrator, Rita Crunwell, that money really was taken from the citizens of Dixon. It affected the quality of life in that city. It affected the infrastructure of that city. You could see the damage that was being done by right. by that crime. It's much more difficult for me at least. Somebody somebody smarter than me could probably explain, well, this is this is the impact that that had. Like the the you know when you have income impact statements 
at sentencings, uh-huh. you know, and it's like, uh-huh, is yeah. the general counsel of ING going to walk in there and give an impact statement about a corporation and expect like people <laughs> to shed tears? I just don't think so, you yeah, know? And so, right. so I guess, you know, to bring it all home for someone, <laughs> for a first time offender, it, probably somebody who had no more than a traffic ticket before and someone to, to spend over five years in prison for a nonviolent crime seems like that seems like justice. It may not satisfy everyone, but I think a lot of people would say, I mean, that's five years of his life that he'll never get back. And his life is forever altered uh, after that. And so I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to argue that he diver- deserved to be punished more severely. Yeah. And I, and I think in terms of the, the prison sentence, I think that that's, I think five and a half years is, is fine because I don't feel like he's necessarily a, a threat to society that needs to be locked away and kept away from everyone else. So five and a half years, just in terms of, hey, did you learn your lesson? I think five and a half years does that. The biggest thing that I think in terms of justice is just the assumption that this guy's wages are going to be garnished to a very high degree for yep. the rest of his life. Yep. I, to me, that's justice. That That's that's as much justice as we can get out of him. So for I sure. think I feel okay with that. And I, Even though uh, some, some people might argue that this prison sentence was way too light for $8 million right it's interesting because it it brings something up for me that i heard like the psycho the psychology i think of a a white collar criminal you look at these circumstances you know you family trouble financial troubles things like that and and the stress that that puts on people and then they put themselves in the situation where they make really poor decisions and they and they end up in trouble with like i mean are those people criminals and so Sometimes the psychology of these things is interesting. It's it's just as diverse as the circumstances around the cases themselves. Yeah. yeah. And so Absolutely. like when I look at the story of this guy, it's just like, man, dude was stressed out. Like we're going to get into the rationalization I think here in a minute. And like he was yeah. he was very unhappy with his career. He was very unhappy with his his stage in life and you were saying earlier he's like he seemed unhappy in his marriage and he got a divorce and it's just like and so he stole and I'm just, and I can't help but feel sorry for somebody in a situation like that. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and tons of what we're doing. I mean, again, th- we're like the, we're the, we're the armchair forensic accountants. Right. So a lot That's of right. what we're doing is just going, going, I bet you it was like this when we really have no clue, but, but I don't think it's, it's a frivolous exercise to kind of, you know, to, to give our best guesses based on uh, a experience and B the research that we're aware of that helps inform the, what, what the, you know, what, what is generally the cause of that, but that, that brings in, and, and a lot of what you just said really wraps us around to the rash. We talked about opportunity. He had opportunity. He knew he could steal a bunch of money. He didn't do anything to close that opportunity gap. And he ended up stealing a bunch of money because of it. Nobody else closed it either. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about his story is actually the lack of a discussion for what his rationalization was for his fraud. Because generally when we're talking about rationalization for fraud, we're talking about how the perpetrator can take all that money and still go, yeah, I deserved it. Or yeah, I'm still, it makes sense that that I should have gotten this money. There was none of that here. Um, and, and so the the idea that comes to my mind is oh he was just plain uh, motivated by uh, by greed you know yep. the, the, the 
there's no right. He's just like going, no, I, I, I just want money and that's it. I and deserve so more that. Yeah. 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 Or, or maybe not even that because really you get into like, like a, a significant number of frauds are perpetrated by people who would be, uh, who would be labeled by professionals as sociopaths or even mm-hmm. psychopaths, meaning that they just don't have the normal human emotions of like guilt. Yep. And so, so they're like going, yeah, yeah, I, I took the money. So what it was, I could, and I did. And that's the end of the story. But, but I also think that that's like a, a cheap way out is going, okay, we can't see a rationalization. So they must've been a sociopath. Caleb, one of the things that we saw with Nathan Muller's fraud, and I talked about this earlier, is the geometric growth of what he what he stole. So it was it started out, I guess technically the first year was 2003, where he he only stole the eighty eight thousand dollars. But then 2004 he stole one million. 2005 he stole two million. 2006 he stole four million. So that's like literally that's textbooks ex- exponential growth. And when we're Looking at detection of fraud, one of the things that's that's clear that happens all the time, and again, it, for the fraudsters that get caught, this is what happens, is that they get bolder and bolder very quickly to where they will just ramp up their operations to take tons and tons of money, where you do see this kind of exponential growth. And that's actually, it's not really a red flag, but it's something that you can actually test for in companies. And the the technical name of it is the largest subsets growth test. And really all that means is you need to slice and dice your accounting records to look at different things and to see what's growing a lot. In this case, if they had done the if they had if they had performed the largest subsets growth test on vendors, they could have found the ace business consulting vendor as being an, a, a fraudulent account because what they would have done, you look at your vendor, all of your vendors, you look at them and you go, basically, who who are we paying this year a whole lot more than they were paying last year? And the other thing to think about is we're not just talking about external auditors. We're talking about internal auditors mm-hmm. too. And mm-hmm. internal auditors, really, that's a, that I mean, one of the main places that uh, frauds get sniffed out besides besides tips. Internal yep. audit is really one of the, the bigger sources for these frauds getting discovered. And so with that, if you're in internal audit, just think about this, about looking at vendors year over year and whoever blew up, whoever seems like they're making a lot more money, that's where you start asking some more questions and you can maybe find it. So I think that's a great, a real great practical thing that could have brought this one to, uh, to light a lot earlier than it was. All right, Caleb. Well, I think that's a lot of the lessons. I, there was more lessons that we learned, but really uh, we could get into minutia and super nerdiness if we pursued everything to the final degree of what, what's possibly a lesson learned from this, uh, from, from this case. I think we covered it. We've, we've done the best we could. We, the, the, the best we can, Greg. We've done the best we can. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. If you are tempted to steal from your company, just remember to turn yourself in before you do anything wrong, but make sure you get credit for it by saying that you found a material weakness in the internal controls of the company that you work for. Also, the other big takeaway is make sure you have lunch with your co-worker's ex-wife at Panera Bread. Panera Bread is widely recognized as the Batcave for fraud detection. Caleb, 
If people want to get a hold of you, how can they find you out there in internet land? Yeah, you, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at C Newquist and LinkedIn. That's probably the two places I spend the most time. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, I should, it's my full name, Caleb Newquist. What about you, Greg? Where do you hang out on the webs? Best two places are the same places as you said. Twitter, I'm at Greg Kite. And uh, LinkedIn, I am Greg Kite CPA. So find me at both those places. Also, if you want a uh, a, a reasonably uh, clever cartoon from time to time, I publish my cartoons on those two outlets as well. Um, Caleb, how about you read us out? Oh, My Fraud is written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Blake Oliver. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, my fraud. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.